The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. We direct you back to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning as we will consider the portion of Scripture between verses 1 and 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now today we move into a new chapter of 1 Timothy, one in which Paul begins to instruct Timothy on how to approach his communication with various groups of people in the church. In other words, how is it that Timothy should talk to people that find themselves in his congregation? And this is going to be relevant, first of all, for me. It's relevant for gospel ministers, but I believe that this is relevant for all of us as we learn how to talk to one another with the respect that each and every one of us deserves in the church. And so we've entitled our message this morning, Respectful Dealings, Respectful Dealings. Now, as we begin to consider this, and we'll read it in just a moment, as we approach this text, understand that correction, Timothy's correction of others in the church is implied in the context here. You might notice the first phrase in this passage, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And so correction is implied, but how is it that we are supposed to correct those when we undoubtedly have to correct those from time to time? Now, as we think about the role of a minister in the church, we just remind you of a couple of passages to emphasize Timothy's responsibilities in the church and also any other gospel ministers' responsibilities in the church. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the Apostle Paul described the ministry and our relationship with the ministry. Verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So we remember them that have the rule, as it were. Now we understand through Peter's writings that the gospel minister is not a lord over God's heritage, but he does, in a sense, have the rule in the church. And what that means is that he is the overseer, and he is to stand on the Word of God, and as he presents the Word of God, the Word of God has the final say. The minister is to lead and guide a congregation. Verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 13, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. Why? Well, first of all, remember that they present unto you the good Word of God, and so When they teach the Word of God, we're to submit to what they teach from the Word of God. But notice what the latter portion of this verse says. For they watch for your souls. Ministers don't just share the Word of God because we are old-fashioned or because we are cynical. We're the everlasting and eternal curmudgeon. What is your role in the body of Christ? My role is the curmudgeon. If you don't know what that word means, look it up. It means an ill-tempered person, by the way. It's because we watch for your souls. When we teach on morality, we teach on humility, we teach the principles of the Word of God, we do that because we love you and we love God and we love the Word and we want to spare you from things in your life that could be destructive. And so they are they which watch for your souls as they that must give account. Account to whom? Account to God. We are accountable to God for our oversight in the church of the Lord Jesus. And I can tell you, as a minister, that makes every single true minister of the gospel shiver and tremble at the thought of coming under the judgment seat of Christ for what we teach and for the way that we try to intervene in the lives of those that hear our preaching, those for whom we're responsible. We give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. There are times in a minister's life when he does this with joy, and there are times in a minister's life when he does this with grief. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time in a ministry to experience both of those. For that, Paul says, is unprofitable for you. If a minister does this with grief, it isn't going to profit you the way that it could. And so what do we do? Well, we obey them that have the rule over us. Timothy is a minister. He bears the rule at this time in his life over the church of Ephesus. 
Paul left him there to labor, to teach, to preach, to ordain other people, both bishops and deacons. And as a minister, part of his role is to correct those that are under his hearing. How should he correct those that are under his hearing? We'll read this in just a moment. And so we see this office demonstrated and the severity of it, the importance of this authority depicted for us in Hebrews chapter 13. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul writes, Preach the word. To whom is he writing? He's writing to Timothy again. Preach the word, not your ideas, not your opinions. We all have opinions and you can't preach but from your opinion. Your understanding of a text is all you can share, but we don't preach our ideas, our our own individual concepts, our inventions. We've already been exhorted to avoid fables. We don't preach our own fables, but we preach what? We preach the Word. We're to be in season or instant in season and out of season. We are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. What do we do? We reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, if we're reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, if we're reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, it stands to reason then that there are things that ministers are going to say from time to time that are critical. If someone is living a lifestyle that is contrary to the Word of God, and you address them and you attempt to show them a better way to live, there is no way to do that without being critical. And so much of what we say today will have to do with the way we speak to others in moments of rebuke. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, rebuke not an elder, and yet here we read, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Is that a contradiction? No. You have the balancing of rebuking, which is something we must do, on the other hand, with the gentle, kind nature with which we are to rebuke. We must rebuke, we must correct, we must lead. Now, As we approach today's passage with that preface in mind, let's read this and focus on the fact that Timothy has the rule over a congregation. They are to obey what he says from the Word, not because he said it, but because the Word said it. He isn't a Lord, but he is in a position of oversight and authority. He has to rebuke. He has to reprove. He has to be instant in season and out of season in doing this. But at the same time, he's not to be cruel or harsh, vindictive, or proud in going about to do this. So you might consider this the attitude as much as it is the respectful interaction that Timothy is to have when he does correct someone. Now, again, this has to do with Timothy and the way that he talks to various demographics in the church that he serves, but I want us to all apply this to the way that we talk to people. Now, if you're a parent, you're probably thinking, great, my children are going to hear a message on talking to their elders with respect, and that is part of what you will hear. And if you're a parent, you're thinking, about time. But you see, the Bible is such a double-edged sword. Not only do we learn how... To talk to our elders, we also learn that there's a way that we're to talk to younger people. And parents, there's a way that we need to talk to our younger people. There's also, conversely, a way that we don't need to talk to our younger people. We need to keep this in mind, all of us, as we deal with the various demographics in our church. And you say, well, this is talking about church, not kids. If your children belong to the church, then your children are church too. And when you leave this place, they are church just as much as anyone else's church that leaves this place. That's very convicting to me as the dad who happens to be the pastor of the people who live in my home because they get yelled at by their pastor. (laughs) A lot more than anyone else here gets yelled at by their pastor. So let's begin reading. Verse 1, Rebuke not an elder, Paul says, but entreat him as a father, the younger men as brethren, 
the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Now, as we begin looking at the demographics today, one of the things that we'll notice is that there's a special demographic in the church that we, as the body of Christ, are to take care of, and we're to, as he says, honor them. And the way that we honor them is in a very special way, which we'll teach through at the latter part of our message today. But I want you to remember that demographic as being one that is important that we need to keep in mind. But if any, have, uh, any widows have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requit their parents. The word honor in English is a synonym with the word requit, and the word requit means to pay back, to pay back. For that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge, that means charge them strongly to do this, that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported off for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. Now, this is the part that we'll probably won't have time to get to today, but I want to at least read it for your hearing. And with all they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. This is a woman who is widowed and young and bored, apparently, and begins to go about causing mischief because she has nothing better to do. I will, therefore, that younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion for the, or to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some are already turned aside after Satan. And then we finish our reading. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let the church not be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Now, that's a lot more reading than we generally do at the beginning of a sermon, but... If you take any of that passage, you have to give it all at one time because that's the complete message that Paul begins in verse 1. Now, just some fundamentals as we begin to think about the way that we talk to one another and the way that we're to behave to one another. The church, as an organization, is also a family, but even stronger than a family, the church is to function as a body of members. That's why we refer to one another as what? Church members. The word member in the KJV in the New Testament was often used to describe people who belong to a local individual church, but Paul would say that in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 that we are members of a body. And so every single one who is a part of Flint River Church, you have been gifted by God at the very moment of your salvation, at the new birth, you've been gifted by God of a special package of spiritual gifts that God intends for you to use in his service. And Paul uses this term members when he has reference to the way that your body has members, your hand, your fingers, your arms, your legs, your organs, your nose, your ears, your mouth. Your body has many members, they all have different functions, but every single part of your body is important and even designed that way of God. Think about how wondrously made the human body is. The way that your ears pick up waves and they're designed to take these waves and funnel them in and your body decodes that signal and you hear and you can interact with the world around you or your eyes that detect a portion, a small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum we call light, visible light, and it 
detects that, your brain translates that, and you can see the world around you, your vocal cords that God has created, wherewith we sound, and with our mouths and tongues, we, we change the shape to change the sound, and we can speak to one another, we can communicate with one another. What an amazing thing language is, and certainly that is something that is created of God. God, the second person of the Trinity, is the word Literally, Christ's name is the word, certainly language, words are something that was invented by God himself. God said, let there be light, and there was what? There was light. And so the body is an amazing thing. Each individual member designed of God to function as a part of the body for the betterment and the benefit of the entire body. Now, when Paul talks about gifts in the church... He describes the church as a body full of members, and every single member is just as important as every other member in the body. We all have different roles, we all have different tasks, we all have different responsibilities and abilities, and yet every member is important. We don't take that lightly. We should look at one another in the church and be very thankful for one another. Just to demonstrate that, when Jesus talked about dangers in the church, and he talked about problems in the church, he speaks of it in such a way as to cut off a limb and cast it from you that the body perish not. That's how severely we should think about things such as church discipline. Now, by way of example, who would volunteer today for, I don't know, me, you, anyone else, to take a knife and to remove your arm? Any takers? Any volunteers? I, I think I want my arm amputated today. We do everything we can to keep every part of the human body that we were born with intact. And that's the analogy that Paul uses for the love we should have for one another in the church. Everyone is important. Everyone needs to be here. If they're beloved of God, then they're important, and it is crucial that they present themselves together in worship of God. We are all different body parts, different members in the body of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. The church functions as a body of members. Now, we're laying groundwork to emphasize how important it is then that we speak to each other in a certain way, that we respect one another, that we love one another, that we care for one another. The early church was, in a sense, very communal. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, this was something that was practiced by the early church, and it carried for some portion of church history. In times of extreme persecution and extreme poverty, sometimes the poverty is the result of the persecution, this personality trait of the church revives, if you've studied church history. In Acts chapter 2, look at the way the church interacted one with another. And all that believed were together. First of all, in terms of proximity, they were with one another. Might I suggest that a strong, healthy church throughout the week are often together. The members of that church will often be together. We need to be in each other's lives. We need each other. We need to be a part of each other's lives. We need to do things together, to spend time together, to eat together, to help one another in our times of need. Think about the very earliest days of the church. What was the example that Jesus set with his apostles? They were always together. They were inseparable. The one time in Peter's life that he said, I'm going back to work. Do you remember that? It's after Jesus was resurrected. Peter had seen the resurrected Christ, but he has no idea what he's going to do with his life. It's a time of change. Things are different. They're discouraged. They followed him for three and a half years. Peter looks at the disciples and he says, I go fishing. I'm going to go fish. He's not saying I'm bored. He's not going for recreational fishing. That was his livelihood. That was his career. He says, I'm going back to work. They say, well, we'll go with you. Who shows up on the, on the shore there? Jesus. And he rebukes him. You love me more than you love these fish? Then go feed my sheep. Peter, you don't have the prerogative of going back to work now. You have to pursue Christ. In the first century church, they were always together. That's the only occurrence of any of them 
especially those 12, going back to work, as it were. But they spend every waking moment of every day with Jesus. The example is that the church is close together. Our strength lies there. Our strength lies there. They were together. They had all things common. Now, this isn't teaching that governments should embrace the political and economic framework of communism. This isn't teaching that because they had all things common that Rome should have set up communism or any other nation set up communism. But what this is teaching is that the disciples were such a close family that if there was a need, they simply took care of it. This was a day of great famine. There were people in the church that were very wealthy, but there were also people in the church that were very poor. Over in Acts chapter 5, they that owned houses and lands, this would be excess properties and such, they sold them and they gave the proceeds to the apostles and from that treasury distribution was made to every man as every man had need. This isn't something that's ever explicitly commanded for us to do, but it is something that is certainly depicted as good and wholesome and right, especially in times of poverty. Now, we're separated from that to a great degree in America today. None of us are starving to death, to my knowledge. But if you are and you find yourselves in hard times, it's our privilege to help you. It is our privilege to help you. They were together. They had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Meat has reference to any food. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, as a dad of daughters, and I'm sure any of you with children have watched your fair share of Disney movies, you know that they always end, and they all lived happily ever after. If there was to be an and they all lived happily ever after moment in the book of Acts for church history, inspired church history to stop and to leave off, it would be right there in verse 47. Doesn't it seem almost like a storybook ending? The Lord added to the church daily. They praised God. They had favor with God and with the people. It would be a wonderful time to put a period and end that book. But you know that life is never that way in this world. If, as we've said recently, if you're not in a storm, there's one behind you. And if there's one behind you, you know that there's one in front of you until we leave this world. It is a, a land of hills and valleys. It's a land of deserts and storms. And when we find ourselves being led beside green pastures, we know that there will come a time again that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as Psalm 23 said. But throughout all of that, we understand that Christ is our great shepherd. Now, church history doesn't end here, and the storybook ending will not be in this life, but the life to come. But notice, prior to this statement in verse 47, these people were together. Things between them were considered common. They loved one another. They cared for one another. There was a special relationship between the disciples. That's the way the church is to be today. We need to know one another. We need to love one another. We need to care for one another. The closest people in our lives are to be the brothers and sisters of our local assembly, and by extension of that, even into other local assemblies around us. In the book of John chapter 13, as we speak about the importance of the way that we speak to one another, John chapter 13, this is in the upper room discourse. Jesus preaches this. Directly after communion and after foot washing, and before he would enter out into the garden and pray all night, and before the sun came up, be arrested as he was betrayed by Judas. So just to give you the context of what's taking place, Jesus begins to speak to them after Judas Iscariot leaves the room about their interactions one with another. And this is something that he would reiterate throughout this discourse. But I just want to give you 
this paragraph between verses 31 and 35 and emphasize one particular point that he made. Therefore, when he, Judas, was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. I share that with you to say that Jesus is going away. He knows he is going away. He is soon to be crucified, and his disciples will be left there with the void of his presence. Now, as he would tell them later in this message that he delivered to them, if he goes not away, he cannot send the Comforter. The Holy Spirit would come upon them in great power. They will not be left with a complete absence of God's presence, but the Holy Spirit would be there to the same degree that the second person of the Godhead was there. But Jesus says, little children, a little while I'm with you, you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you, I'm going away and you will not be able to follow me this time yet. I'm going to ascend to glory. You will not ascend to glory at this time. We know at death our souls are with Christ in glory, but even our physical bodies are not there with Christ until the second coming. And so Jesus is telling them that I'm going away, and unlike when you followed me to Galilee, unlike when you followed me to Jerusalem where they are now, unlike when you followed me all around the Sea of Galilee doing miracles and healing people and feeding the hungry, where I'm going you can't go. All right, Jesus, what do you want us to do then while you're gone? I want you to see the significance of this. Whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you. A new commandment. Now this commandment is new in that he had not specifically told them up until this point, this is something that you will do, and the ramifications of that have not been revealed to them yet. But this is... This is the second most important command in all of the law. What's the first most important? That you should love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Second to that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so to love one another was at the very root of all of the law. Think about it. When God said in the Ten Commandments, for instance, you shall have no other gods before me. That was a law about our loving God. When he said to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, that was a law about loving God. When he said not to make any graven images, that was a law about loving God. When he says thou shalt not kill, the reason you cannot kill is because you are to love your fellow man. You cannot love your fellow man and kill your fellow man or steal from him or covet that which belongs to him or lie about him, bear false witness against him. And so all of the law can be summarized in these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. To love God and to love our neighbor. But Jesus frames this in an interesting way. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Part of the newness of this is not only that we love them, but that we love them as he has loved us. That was a love the world had never known. He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Has the world ever known a love like the love of Jesus? What an amazing, what a wondrous love is this. And Jesus says, this commandment I give unto you is that you love one another the way that I have loved you, a greater love. In fact, he would say that no greater love is this, and that a man lay down his life for his friends, but the man that would lay down his life had no reason to. If the wages of sin are death, he had no sin for which to die. Also, the newness of this commandment, verse 35, listen carefully. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now that is to me a bit amazing. There are many important things in the church. The ordinances are important. To the identity, they are crucial to the identity of the body of Christ. The case can be made that without the true ordinances, you can't even have a true church. Not implying that those who are participating in such an organization are all bound for hell. Quite the contrary, but to have a true candlestick-given organization 
as we would call it, that is, as he would call it, a church, you would think the ordinance would have to be there. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. You would think that Jesus would say, by the proper ordinances, all men would know that you're my disciples. Or perhaps through believing and preaching the true gospel, all men will know that you're my disciples. Wouldn't you believe that that's what Jesus would say? Paul makes that case over and over that there are other gospels that are no gospels at all and we should reject them and those that teach them. In fact, he goes to the lengths of saying that we should mark them, which means to take note and to watch, and avoid them, which teach things that are contrary to the word that we've been given by the apostles. Truth is important. The Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth, but Jesus doesn't say, through the truth, all men shall know that you're my disciples. What does he say? Through loving one another. All men shall know that you are my disciples. What is to be the uniform of the church member? A real, fervent, Christ-like love of our brothers and our sisters in the church. How you identify a true disciple of Christ While there are many identifying marks concerning ordinances and truth and church participation, what Jesus says that stands out above all other things is love. To give you a way to perhaps understand this and emphasize it in your mind, on many points of doctrine, the Pharisees were orthodox. In many points of doctrine, the Pharisees were orthodox. And not only were they not disciples, many of them were of their father, the devil. A generation of vipers who could not escape the damnation of hell, according to Matthew 23. Jesus says, the way that people will know that you're really my disciple is that you love one another. His banner over me is what? Love. God so what the world that he sent his only begotten son to die. Loved. That one attribute is the difference in Jacob and Esau. One was loved of God and according to Romans 9, God hated Esau and loved Jacob. Love is the divine trait that motivates everything else In the entire story of redemption, God loved, and so God did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And by living out this love, we do what? We show the world that we are his disciples. If you have love one to another, we cannot overemphasize this, which is exactly what Paul's point is in 1 Timothy 5, which we'll come back to in just a moment. Now, one man that was present at this moment in Jesus' ministry in John 13 was a man named John. He referred to himself over and over in his gospel as that disciple whom Jesus loved. John is often referred to as the disciple of love. And the reason is because he wrote so much about loving one another. In fact, church history would have it that when John the apostle was so old, he was the only disciple that, the only apostle rather, that didn't suffer martyrdom and It's conjecture, but you could speculate that because Jesus left Mary, his mother, under the care of John, that he honored the Lord's mother, that, what is it, if you honor your father and your mother, your days shall be long in the earth. John lived longer than any of the other apostles. He was the only one that did not die a martyr's death. John is referred to as the apostle of love because he wrote so much about loving one another. And, finish my tangent, When he was an old man in the church, it is said of him that they would lead him in, too old to preach, too old to exhort, too old to exposit. He would admonish the church, little children, love one another. The old, aged John, in his final years, without the strength to do anything more, would simply exhort the disciples to love one another. 
love one another. You might also see some irony in that apostle of love. There was a time in his life when there were people who were outsiders, and he asked Jesus, do we call fire down from heaven like Elijah? And over and over when the disciples would ask questions like that, Jesus would tell them, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't understand who's motivating you right now. In the book of 2 John, verse 5, we see an example of this. Now I beseech thee, lady. Now this is written to the elder, uh, the elder unto the elect lady and her children. And it's debated whether elect lady has reference to a literal elect chosen lady and her biological children, or if John is writing to a church, an elect lady, and her children would be those who worship at that local assembly. And I'm fine receiving either of those. It doesn't explicitly say. But he says, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. What's John referring to when he says that which we had from the beginning? Jesus' command in John 13. Now understand that John is the elder here. He's an ordained minister, sure, but this is John the aged. This is an old apostle John. He is an old man now. And he says this isn't a new commandment. Now this is one that we've had from the beginning of the church itself, that we love one another. This teaching of Christ in John 13 had an effect on him. After all, it was John who wrote the Gospel of John who recorded it through the Holy Spirit for all of us to know. And he exhorts the church to love one another. It's a commandment that we had all through the church age that we love one another. 1 John 4 verse 7. Ye are of God little children and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us. He's contrasting between those that are of God and those that are not of God. Let's look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now in this first epistle of John, there are things that John says declare that you are of God. He that doeth righteousness in chapter 2, verse 29, is born of God. Those that hear are born of God. Hear what? The gospel. Those that receive the word are born of God. We talked about that last week from 1 Corinthians 1. Those who confess that Jesus is the Christ are born of God, chapter 4, verse 15. Those that believe, 1 John 5, 1. He contrasts the born again with the unborn again, those that are not born again. Most importantly, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. As a principle, every person in the world that truly has love in the heart, according to John, is born of God. Now, sometimes people without love do things that look loving because it benefits them in the world. And so ultimately, only God knows the heart. Look at verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. He that loveth not knoweth not God. If a person knows God, there will be love in his heart. Now John continues to speak about love and the love that God had for us, that he might send his son, send his son into the world to die for us, to be the propitiation, the mercy seat for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. He would make the point that none of us have seen God, and yet we love Him, or we say we love Him. If, we've, if we say we love God, and we've never seen God, how can we say we love God when we don't even love one another, and we've seen one another? In other words, how can you say you love God when you, when you don't see Him, and 
And then be hateful to your brother. Simply hypocritical. Now back up to chapter 3, and we'll look at a little more about the importance of loving one another in the church. He wrote very strongly of this in chapter 3. Let's look at verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. From the beginning when? Genesis 1.1, no, from the beginning of the church age, when Jesus preached unto them the night before he was crucified, that they should love one another and that the world would know that they are his disciples through their love for one another. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was of his father the devil. Cain was unregenerate. Cain was reprobate. Cain was wicked. Cain was not a disobedient child of God. Cain was evil, complete evil. He was of that wicked one. There's nothing else that can be done with that language. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, let me speak very clearly concerning that language. To hate your brother means that he's your brother. But to hate your brother is to abide in death, the same type of death that motivated Cain when he slew Abel. What does it mean to abide in death? When you are saved by God's grace, you are no longer dead in trespasses and in sins. You've been delivered from death. To hate your brother is to go back and move in to set up your tent and drive the stakes into the ground of your tabernacle and live in the land death that you've been delivered from. You abide in death. You go back and you live where you used to be. If we hate our brother in Christ, we are living in the death from which we have been delivered. Or as you might say it, an unloving disciple abides in the death of his old life. An unloving disciple abides in the death of his old life. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. He's rocking their world. He's saying if you hate a brother, you're committing the very sin in your heart that a murderer a mass murderer, a serial killer, one who continually murders, commits with his hands. And you know that someone who goes around doing that for the fun of doing that hath not life in him. And so we should not commit the same sin on one level of hating our brother. We have no permission of God to hate our brother. Back to the book of First Timothy. I didn't count that as a preface, so I can say that the preface wasn't 45 minutes long. Paul attaches a familial tie to each demographic group in the church. What I mean by that is with regards to the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, we should treat one another in the church because we love one another the same way as is proper with the way that you would talk to your parent when you are obedient to Christ, the way that you would talk to your brother or your sister in the flesh when you are obedient to Christ. If you couldn't see yourself yelling in the face of your aged father, what a sinful and wicked thing that would be to do. Then we should never find ourselves yelling in the face of an aged man in the church or a woman or a younger man, or a younger woman. These familial tile, uh, ties have been given as examples. Familial ties. Now remember that the context of this is when you have to rebuke, when you have to correct. And so even in moments of correction, we are to approach this with great reverence and love and humility. Paul says the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. We are to be kind, we are to be gentle, that God, if God peradventure, grant them repentance unto the acknowledging of the truth. Rebuke not an elder, 
Paul would write to Timothy. Remember that Timothy is a younger man, and we defined the word youth there uh, from the generation in which Paul writes. It was used to refer to anyone under 40. And so when he writes about younger men and younger women, he has reference to people that are 40 or under, people who are not yet the age of 40. So it could apply to a person in their 30s, it could apply to a person in their 20s, it could apply to a person in their teens or even a child. He says, rebuke not an elder to this younger person, Timothy, believed to be in his late 30s at this point of writing. Timothy, don't rebuke an elder. Now, the word elder here doesn't have reference to an elder as in a preacher, but an elder as in an older man in the church, an aged man, an elderly man. The word in the original language carried both definitions, either the elder of the synagogue, later the elder of the church, or an older person. Rebuke not an elder as in an older man, but entreat him as a father. Even in moments of correction, we should be very careful the way that we speak to those that are our senior. To simply put it the way that every parent here has talked to their child, respect your elders. Respect your elders. Respect them. Love them. Timothy, even if you have to correct them. The word rebuke means to strike with the tongue. Have you ever been struck with the tongue? Have you ever struck someone with the tongue? It means to be hit with words, to be injured with words. Don't strike an older man with your tongue, Timothy. Don't hurt him with words. Now, a good example of this that we don't have time to look at would be the man Elihu in the book of Job. Job has had afflictions befall him. He's suffering. He's lost his children. He's lost his financial status. He's lost his health. The only thing he has left is his wife, and she tells him to curse God and die. Just end it all. End it all, Job. And then his friends show up, these miserable comforters that come to Job. And there's a fourth man there that, by some language towards the end of that book, we believe to be the narrator of the book of Job, a young man named Elihu. Elihu patiently waited till all of the older men had spoken. He waited till Job had spoken with all of them. And finally, at the end of it, he describes it as wine put up in bottles. He's ready to burst. He can't hold his tongue anymore. And he begins to talk some sense into everyone there and speak for God. Later in the book of Job, God shows up. And you know, the only man there who was not rebuked of God, including Job, was this young man, Elihu. It's a good example of respecting your elders. We should talk respectfully to older men in the church as if they are a father figure. The elder women as mothers. We should talk to older women in the church. We are commanded to talk to the older women in the church as if they are mothers. The younger as sisters. I skipped the younger men as brethren. Timothy, you're to talk to your peers and treat your peers as if they are your own biological, natural brother in the flesh. You're going to talk to your brother as an adult if you are a follower of Christ differently than you would talk to other people. It's just a fact of the matter. We should be kind with one another, and especially of those that we share a last name and a blood tie with. Younger women should be addressed as sisters with all purity. Now, let me look at that for just a moment. With all purity. Now, I'm going to try to say this in a way that is modest, Okay, young men, you all, I trust, are looking for a wife. Correct? Most of you? I think so. The best place, usually, to look for a spouse is to look among, well, the only place for you to look for a spouse is among those who name the name of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you have to marry a person that goes to Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, but the Bible says that we are not allowed to unequally yoke with an unbeliever. So right off the bat, you're not allowed to consider for marriage someone who is an unbeliever. Well, he's an atheist, but he's a really nice guy. I'm sorry, he's not qualified to be your husband. Well, you know, she's a, she's a pagan and she practices Wicca and witchcraft, but she's a really pretty girl, Dad. She's not qualified to be your wife. Sorry. 
So we should look for spouses among fellow believers. Fellow believers. How is it that a young man is supposed to look at a young woman in the church with all what? Purity. With all purity. It's interesting that he attaches this to the way that Timothy or other young men are to look at young women in the church. You look at them not as an object of your gratification. You look at them as if they are your very own sister. As if they are your sister. The younger women as sisters with all purity. There's a way that we should behave one to another, and it should always be with purity. I want you to marry a believer, but we should not look at them, you should not look at them as objects of lust. Is that real for you this morning? I think it's about as real as it can be, and here it's written 2,000 years ago as Paul wrote to a young preacher. Young women should be addressed as sisters. As the body of Christ, we are to love one another. We're to care for one another. Next week, we'll look at what Paul said concerning the widows as time is away, and we certainly don't have time to approach that today. And so we'll put this message on Paul's and continue it next week together. As we close today, and we'll sing the song Kindred in Christ as we stand together in just a moment, we are to love each other in the church more than we love anyone else in this world. We're to be our best friends, our closest allies, people who help one another and care for one another and support one another. There is a code of conduct in the church where if you are a brother in the church, I should look at you and speak to you in a certain way, and likewise with sisters.